0: So just a quick word of warning before this episode begin. I did envisage doing this 70mm film festival this year as one big long episode, but it was going on and on and on. And I was consciously aware of the fact I was getting lost in the editing of it. So I've decided to split it in two and there'll be an intermission, um, as it were, with a smaller episode in between. So here are the first five films in this year's 70mm film festival. I hope you enjoy it. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. and this is going to be the 2021 70mm film festival I really enjoyed doing last year's and I wanted to make this a regular fixture so there is quite a lengthy introduction to this episode um, which is I suppose in keeping with 70mm films they do tend to be on the rather epic side and there's going to be some amendments to how this one's gonna work. And in order to explain those amendments, I'm gonna have to do a bit of a, a look at film history. So uh, bear with me. Hopefully you will find it quite interesting. Um, I know I certainly did in an incredibly nerdy, geeky way. So I'm just gonna crack on with it. So last year's 70 millimeter film festival, I picked 10 films, all filmed on various 70 millimeter formats. And whilst I researched that episode, and acquired the necessary films on Blu-ray and the like, it became increasingly obvious that were I to stick completely to films only made in the 70mm format, there simply would not be enough films to do so many of these types of episodes, obviously only be once a year, but 70mm, for all its grandeur, had one problem and that was the cost to make on that format was enormous and as such there's in addition the about 40 films made in the West on 70mm and there's a great deal made in the Soviet Union and former communist countries but these are virtually impossible to get hold of on DVD and if you can get hold of decent copies of them more often than not, well sorry actually if you can sorry, get hold of copies of them more often than not what you get are essentially cropped VHS transfers. They are Some of them are absolutely, truly dreadful. Um, VHS quality pirate copies. They, they don't do the format, or indeed the film, any good at all. So what was I to do? And luckily there was a solution to this problem for reasons I'm gonna get to that will give this film festival many years um, of longevity. And, and in order to explain how I'm going to kind of get round this 70mm problem, we have to go back to 1963, and Otto Premiers' new film, The Cardinal, was released in roadshow presentations in the 70mm format at Hollywood's Egyptian theatre, one of the biggest screens in existence. And the assembled audience and the industry technicians assumed The Cardinal had been filmed on 65 next millimeter negative for a 70 millimeter print and the level of visual presentation was what they had come to expect from the format it was bright sharp and beautiful colors the image was pristine for a film shot and exhibited on 70 millimeter there was only one thing and the car that was the Cardinal had not been filmed in 65 millimeter negative instead it had been shot on standard Panavision 35 millimeter and then blown up to produce a 70mm release print. Blow-ups are, were nothing new, um, from 8mm to 16mm, from 16mm to 35mm, but this was something quite different. The blow-up from 35 to 70mm looked almost as good as if the films had been shot natively on 65mm and released on a normal 75mm print. So the question was, why and how had this process even been invented? 70mm film exhibition came at, at cost. Theatres had to invest a great deal in new technologies to display the format, new projectors, new screens, and new sound systems to utilise the multi-channel sound recordings found on the 70mm format. And just in case you're wondering, and just for clarification, 70mm exhibitions of film consisted of 65mm being used just for the image, and the remaining five millimeters containing the audio track. The original negative used on shoots would therefore be 65 millimeter, hence why you've heard me referring to that size for the original camera stock. And 75 millimeter films were shown and released in what's called the roadshow format. And this would mean that there'd only be two or three screenings a day and tickets could be purchased on advanced on a reserved basis. They were supposed to feel like an event and, and as such, they carried with them a much higher ticket price from regular admissions. And with screens becoming wider and stereo becoming more popular, cinemas found themselves having to invest more and more in the evolving technology. And sometimes this would be subsidized by the studios themselves. But the result was a big, expensive cinema screens that needed content to help recoup the cost of the investments being made and 70mm exhibitions had proved popular with audiences and as a result, as of 1963, there were about 1100 70mm installations across the world. And for example, in Paris alone, there was actually 12 screens. And as far as I can tell, my, man, my hometown of Manchester had at least two, the Gooman on Oxford Road and the Cannon on Deansgate, which is now actually a Wetherspoons, rather depressingly. Yet, there was a major issue, and that was content. Although films shown in the Roadshow format would typically play for far longer, years in many cases, and would often be re-released. I have a poster in my dining room where I am now recording this, of the 1969 re-release of Ben-Hur theatre chain and owners were hungry for films in the 70mm format to justify the cost of installations and keep audiences coming back. And of course, crucially, distributors and theatres could charge more for this experience. Indeed, many theatres were simply playing normal 35mm prints and blowing them up as much as possible to fill a 70mm screen. And more often than not, this would result in a less than satisfactory image so, what was it? So, what were people to do? After years of research, three companies, Panavision, Eastman Kodak, and Technicolor, had worked in tandem to perfect a process by which 35mm films could be blown up for a 70mm theatrical release. The process was not intended to replace productions using 65mm film stock. but instead, this system was designed so that medium budget productions could after the shooting had ended and when they were thinking about theatrical release decide if they wanted to to strike up 70mm prints for premiere engagements and this process was achieved as such. All you had to do was shoot on the standard Panavision 35mm on the new Eastman stock which like 65mm format was virtually grainless and then the 35mm stock was optically blown up for the 70mm process during which Technicolor would wet print the stock. And this would invade by bathing the negative in liquid that removes scratches and blemishes that would otherwise be blown up along. And if you didn't actually do this, so for example, if you had, I don't know, a bit of dust on the screen, if you blew that up from 35 to 70 millimetre, that piece of dust would be blown up as well. So what this process did was it got rid of virtually all the imperfections. So what you were left with, was a virtually perfect image that was then ripe for being blown up to 70mm. The other benefit was the extra 5mm for the soundtracks meant that you could have six audio channels and after this process was complete you had effectively a 70mm roadshow print ready for exhibition. The result on the industry was profound and although films were still being produced using 65mm film stocks their numbers began to decline Indeed, the numbers speak for themselves. After its invention, fewer than 30 films would be made in the 70mm format, whereas, whereas 250 would have, gone, would have undergone the blow-up process from 35 to 70mm. Cinemas, too, were changing. Multiplexing began in 1963, sometimes purpose-built for more screens, although many went through what was known as twinning, whereby a larger theatre would effectively be cut in two, and renovated to become two screens, and although through the 60s, 70s, and 80s many cinemas had at least one screen able to project 70mm, the the need, however, for a true epic 70mm film production and its associated experience of Super Panavision, Ultra Panavision, Super Technorama, Todd A.O. and the like, were replaced by far more generic just 70mm. An upgrade on the standard 35mm screen experience, but with a distinct lack of the grandeur associated with these huge expensive 70mm productions. And although 70mm blow-ups were close to the real thing, it wasn't quite the real deal. One of the main issues was cropping. For films shot in scope, the ratio would have changed from 2355 to 220 therefore resulting in the side of the image being slightly cropped and as the film shot in the 1.85 ratio the image would see cropping to the sides of the image. In fact indeed I found a rather disparaging review of Rocky 3 which had undergone a 70 metre blow up and that was a film that was shot in a 1.85 ratio. And the reviewer was saying that a great deal of information had been lost from the top and side of the image. The film was almost incomprehensible with eyelines not matching or people some clearly a third of a person being on screen when we should have been able to see them all and this was actually something I've experienced personally when I made a short advert that was shot in a 69 aspect ratio and I went to the cinema because it was playing before and I've actually experienced this myself because I made about three or four years ago I made a short film um, in Manchester and it was shot in a 16.9 or sort of 185 roughly ratio and it was actually picked up to play in um, in, in cinemas and I went there before for a main feature and I went to go and see it and what would actually happened was the film that it was preceding was in a widescreen had been shot in a like 235 uh, aspect ratio and mine had obviously been shot in a 185 and they didn't compensate the projections so basically although my, my my short filled the entire wide screen um so much information was lost it was actually quite um soul destroying actually because all, all the effort I'd put into framing the shots and lighting them um which just in one foul swoop were rendered slightly pointless but anyway I, I digress and another aspect that we have to consider
1: There is something about a tangle of strangers pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. You had him after all. You assume he was killed? No, no, no. No, not... Well, he was in perfectly good health. He, he had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered.
0: God. murder here? God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me.
1: If there was a murder...
0: What
2: is going on?
1: Then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect.
3: And who are you?
1: My name is Hercule Poirot.
0: So given the films I could have picked to open this, the truly huge 70mm epics, the Ben-Hur's, the War in Peace and the like... It might seem slightly odd that I've decided to pick Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express. Yet there is a reason for this. And in a way it was to kind of explore a thought. And that one is that we're regularly informed that cinema is dead. But before Covid struck, I distinctly remember seeing a great deal of films at the local multiplex. So what on earth, therefore, can this actually mean? Well, actually I do know what I think people are trying to say. What I think it boils down to is that people don't think that films are great anymore. They don't look like films. And normally I think this, when people refer to films in this kind of way, they're really talking about films made in America during the 1970s. And it comes down to aesthetics. It's pure and simple. Now, for example, I love Kelly Reichardt films yet they are about as cinematic as an episode of EastEnders. Yet yeah, I always watch them in the cinema, I might add. But I do know, I think, what these people are actually getting at. As much as I was unsure of the, about the film Ad Astra, it sure as hell did feel like a massive, epic film. Huge, in fact. It demands to be seen on the biggest screen known to man. And I really do, even talking about it, think I really need to see it again. And for the subjectivity of what constitutes a film and what I mean when I say the likes of Ad Astra is a film, I do get it. I understand what people mean and what they are saying, even though I don't really think, even though I do think it is quite a problematic um, area to kind of get bogged down in. Which is why I get into the subject. Murder on the Orient Express interests me so much. Here is a well-known story that has been brought to the screen before, notably in Sidney Lumet's 1974 version, a film that I really struggled to make it through. And that was both a huge box office and critical success. Um, Possibly, I I think I do need to go back and revisit that one. It seemed incredibly dated to me and and slightly dull, but I think I might have had quite a bit of alcohol uh, to drink when I was watching it. And of course, anyone in the UK will know the Praro series, on ITV with David Shusay and they eventually got round to doing Murder on the Express in 2010 and I've not seen it, I've only heard good things about it though and by god I used to love Poirot when I was a kid. And of course classic literary characters are always ripe for a good remix. I really enjoyed the steampunk incarnation of Sherlock Holmes with Robert Dowie Jr. Shot through with Guy Ritchie's bold in your face visual star. They were gloriously daft and yet also managed to keep Enough of the original DNA of Holmes so that the character was not totally unrecognisable. Yet Pro is a different beast. Of course you could have gone down the route of a younger Pro, a rough and ready origin tale with our hero punching his way through the narrative and cane carriages to solve the murder. We could even use some father-like figure who shows him how to prune his moustache or instantly tell if someone is lying by the way his left nostril flares and the like. But Branagh has no such intentions for his pro, however, and mercifully so, I might add, because what we have here is one of the finest actors Britain has ever seen and a pretty solid director reinvigorate a character for the big screen. Not for Sunday night, not to binge watch on Netflix, but to actually get you off your arse and down to the biggest screen you can possibly find. And it just about manages to make it all worthwhile. It was said that Agatha Christie had seen Sidney Lumet's version of Murder on, on the Orient Express, yet had reservations about the size of Prior's moustache. I doubt she would have any complaints about Branners. This isn't just a tash, it's a damn near work of art and functions as a good metaphor for what Branner is doing with the film in general. Everything about it is huge, and yes, the 65mm format is a key player in that. The format simply allows him to delve deeper into the image than you can possibly imagine. This isn't the pixels of digital, it's the silver of celluloid and it creates an immersion that although you may not consciously be aware of as you're watching the film, it is there. The one word you can't help but conjure when you watch the film is prestige. Shooting digital is convenient, fast and cost-effective, but when you go on a format like 65mm, it's a mechanical, scientific choice. That's money flying through the camera every time you hit record. Then there's the process of creating rushes, print processing. It merges the many facets of filmmaking, notably art and science, with the latter infusing the former with a word which is becoming increasingly left out of film discussions, and that word would be aesthetics. Murder on the Orient Express is a film that proudly displays its aesthetics above all else. The screen is huge, and it needs to be to cover that tash, but from the off you feel like you have entered another world. I can't recall a time in recent memory where I've been so aware of costume, hair and makeup, art direction, the look of extras, and despite a slight over-reliance on CGI establishing shot, the film is simply gorgeous to look at. Branna has always been a fairly underrated director as far as I'm concerned. I don't think there's a Stone Cold classic on his list. Hamlet possibly comes close, but for the most part his direction is solid and he knows how to tell a story and to tell it well. However, here in lies one of the issues of Murder on the Express. There is really little or no actual drama to the film at all. And of course, the reason I felt this was that of familiarity. If you don't know the conclusion of the film then quite possibly you could find yourself enjoying it but I rather got the impression Branagh 2 is very much aware that most people watching it will know the ending and as such there is a conflict in the film that renders it strangely listless and that conflict is actually Branagh himself the camera along with its 65mm film and presumably very expensive wide lenses worships pro Branagh constantly sticks his mute his huge moustache at the centre of the frame and struts around purposefully, devouring the scenery at every turn. In the Church of the Holy Sepulchre above us, three representatives
1: meet under the supervision of the Chief Inspector of Police to discuss a divided timetable for market use. One hour after this tense meeting, a priceless relic is found to be stolen. It is said one of these three men has stolen it. The police find no pieces of evidence at all. I find one. On the meticulously well-kept wall of a fresco, a single crack from an indelicate climb with
0: a hard-soled shoe or perhaps a boot. And in an ever so slightly quaint way, there is much to enjoy about this. We live in an age where everything has to be dark, moody or brooding and Branagh dispenses with any of that and he, it's as if he's made a film that is the type of thing one can take their mother to that's stocked with enough reassuring thespian talent in the form of Judy Dench, Derek Jacobi, and the like that we feel safe and content and most likely would have forgotten what the film is leading up to anyway. But ultimately, as it progresses, its central plot never really truly kicks in. You feel that there is a stasis to it all. Branna tries to inject some visual flair into the action, but there simply isn't enough life in the make in the film to make it feel truly worthwhile. And yes, there has been a murder of someone and someone has clearly done it and we need to find out who, but the fact of the matter is this. We know who's done it. We've seen it all before. We know exactly where the film is heading. And Branagh, the director, cannot seem to get over himself in the film. And there is, of course, and I think in a way there kind of has to be in a film like this, a plethora of international stars. Michelle Pfeiffer, William Dafoe, Judi Dench, Johnny Depp, Daisy Ridley, Penelope Cruz, Derek Jacobi, Olivia Colman. Yet, at best, these are simply window dressing for the film's prestige aesthetic. When used in cameos like this, stars often become more distracting. Michelle Pfeiffer still looks incredible, yet you don't really think about things like that. I want to know about more about who her character is, what her journey is. And part of this may inset me because of the source material. Christie writes archetypes around Pro and they never see more than an assortment of eccentrics or femme fatales and frumpy aristocrats. On paper, in its contemporary form, this may have worked. But for modern audiences, Murder on the expense creaks a little. Take, for example, Johnny Deck's character, Ratchet. He's such a stereotypical character, it actually borders on the absurd. It's just a little too on the nose to ever take seriously.
1: What? Right. I would like to offer you a job. The Avenger of the Innocent. That's what they call you in the papers. And you want an innocent? I'm a businessman. I'm an art dealer. I mean, I'm new to it, but my beginner's luck has panned out. Relics, antiquities, rugs, weird,
0: orientals. I'm new to the game, so, you know, I got the amateur eyeballs. And make no mistake, I think the film does want you to take this all quite seriously. And there is, of course, a moral question at the core of the film. Do these people deserve justice? And is justice served come the end of the film? Indeed, what is justice? What are the laws when they are collided with morally contentious issues like this? I despise the death penalty, yet I have no problem when I heard reports of ISIS soldiers being shot after their capture in Iraq and Syria. I'm wrong not to condemn the killers, yet something inside me simply cannot bring myself to acknowledge I'm actually wrong. Likewise, I'm always glad when I hear about big game hunters being killed by an animal or bullfighters. Did they really deserve death? But probably not. But somehow I feel justice in a kind of abstract way is being served to them. And when I was thinking about this, I really came to the conclusion that there were two schools of thought you can have with Murder on Audience Express. Brenner could, as we've discussed, try to update the source material, explore those characters more on, giving it more of an edge, more subtlety perhaps, but instead he goes for a faithful approach, albeit one with a huge budget, and this result is a strangely twee film, and other parts of the film, I think, reflect this. Patrick Doyle's score cannot help but tell you with a musical motif, where we are in the Middle East, it's almost eye rolling, and despite some attempts at giving Prioro some backstory, some reference to a former love, something which is most certainly not in Christie's novel, you're left with a film that is largely unimportant, that becomes repetitive with Branagh simply obsessed with giving himself hero shots at every available opportunity. But, and there is a but, there is a strange allure to murder on the Orient Express it's a film, and a huge one, and although there are way too many CGI shots of the train rolling through the mountains, there's an opulence and a presence that reminds you just how huge, daft and silly films can be, and, and that for a couple of hours you can be whisked into another world. The main problem I have with Murder on the Express is that I simply don't love it, and I really, really wanted to, but come the end you're left with a rather nagging doubt that this film was either a missed opportunity or a complete waste of time in the first place. But bizarrely, I do see myself going back to this film, possibly with age it might get better. And indeed, the film's sumptuous look is something, I think, from a cinematic perspective, it's hard to ignore. Brana is going to carry on with this character on Death on the Nile and it'll be interesting to see what he does, if anything, to move this franchise along.
1: The hero is Paris itself, racing against time, knowing that the Germans had mined every one of the bridges across the Seine, every important building, every monument to human dignity. Jean-Paul Belmondo as Morandet, Charles Boyer as Monod, Leslie Caron as Françoise Lambe, Jean-Pierre Cossel as Lieutenant Cochet, George Chakiris as an American GI. Alain Delon as Jacques Chabin Delman. Kirk Douglas plays General George S. Patton. Glenn Ford as General Omar Bradley. Gert Frober, General von Koltitz. Yves Moton as Bizien. This was the rising up of the people of Paris, the underground swell of heroism that jubilantly met the advancing French and Americans. Anthony Perkins as an American sergeant.
2: Boy, I
4: never thought in a thousand years I'd get to see Paris.
1: Simone Signoret as the owner of a French cafe. Robert Stack as General Siebert. Marie Versini as Claire. Skip Ward as an American GI. Orson Welles as the Swedish consul Nordling. And the hero is Paris itself.
0: As a kid, you could pretty much guarantee I would be watching war films. The Longest Day, A Bridge to Far, all of which I would reenact with toy soldiers at various places over my parents' house. They themselves would go to staggering lengths not to disturb the war scenes, even at night when my father would be making one of his many trips to the toilet. And In in retrospect, these films were a good primer for my latter film journey. They were long, epic pieces that often contained a variety of shifting tones, from celebration to disaster. A Bridge Too Far in particular was an incredibly downbeat film that actually had the balls to show that even in victory, the victors could suffer crushing defeats. And I do love these types of film. The ensemble cast, the scale of them are often breathtaking. Which is why I was a little surprised and indeed pleased when I came across René Clément's Is Paris Burning? I decided to do this festival the way I did. I had never seen, and if I'm not entirely sure, I'd even heard of in the first place. Written by Gore Vidal and Francis Ford Coppola, Is Paris Burning does not have a great reputation. It's often called a box office flop. It wasn't and I just don't think people like it all that much, and frankly, I do wonder what they are missing. It is, in my opinion, a really interesting war film. The film begins with Hitler having recently survived an assassination attempt. General Dietrich von Schulitz is summoned by Hitler to oversee the Germans' occupation of Paris and put under strict orders to level the city like Warsaw should the allies come close to recapturing it. From the very beginning, Schulitz is conflicted. He knows the game is up, the war is lost, and he knows Hitler is mad. Yet he is a military man. Should he follow his orders and what should he do? Meanwhile, Paris's resistance groups are divided between the communists and the Gaulists, with each group unsure of what to do, rise up or wait for the Americans to arrive. Outside the city, French and American forces prepare for the next move. Who is going to go in first, or should they pass the city altogether and crack on towards Germany? All the while... Hitler wants the city levelled. Now Clomance Film is an amalgamation of two styles. It certainly has the trappings of a major Hollywood production. It has stars, Orson awesome Welles plays the Swedish ambassador, Kirk Douglas who we'll get to later, Alain Delon, Yves Montard, Glenn Ford, Anthony Perkins. It is epic, rows of tanks, glorious widescreen compositions. It feels like a continuation of The Longest Day, and it's a comparison that is indeed often made. Yet it also has a very European sensibility that Clement brings. Shot entirely on location and using archival footage of the actual liberation of Paris, the characters are not identifiable as being overtly good or bad. The Germans may be Germans, yet the film dares to sympathise with their inner conflict. Charlotte is at one stage orders an attack on a building, only for Wells playing the Swedish ambassador's character to talk him out of it, because one of the apparent casualties to this airstrike might be Notre Dame.
1: So that's the thanks I get for freeing those political prisoners. And now that rebel at the prefecture want a ceasefire. Ha! Never. We'll exterminate all of them. I promise you that by tomorrow there'll be no prefecture, no ceasefire, no palace. We leave that to the Luftwaffe. And if a bomb should miss? A few bombs always miss, but others will hit the target. It's the law of averages. A bomb that misses... could hit... Notre Dame.
2: Saint-Chapelle. It's a thousand years of history. Turned to dust. You're not the first
1: one to tell me that. Yesterday morning, the mayor of Paris was here, Monsieur Titinger. Titinger. And he said the same thing. But what can I do? I am a soldier, and I must obey the orders I
2: was given by the Fuhrer.
0: And it's a sombre film. There are massacres by the SS. And yes, Clement and the Screenplay is intelligent enough to identify between the SS and the German army as being two entities. And the massacres that we see are truly awful. Men thrown out of a trunk and gunned down in piles. And for anyone who has seen the world at war, you'll know that these are grimly realistic. These are young men being murdered days before the liberation, and it's a tragic reminder of the horrors of the conflict. Characters are killed with little fanfare or bombast, they simply die, and the film moves on. A French tank commander, excited to be returning home, is dispatched a few scenes later by a German ambush. And the film revels in the idea of culture as being something worth saving. Paris is a marvel of a city, and in a war where so much was lost, the preservation of Paris stands as something of a chink of light in the darkness. I believe there's an understatement to the film that Clement intones with it. It shifts from bombast and triumphalism to something more cerebral, more considered. You're invited at moments to wonder what Paris, and indeed France, and in turn the world would be without the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, or Notre Dame. And to imagine such wonders gone in the name of wanton destruction is almost too awful to contemplate, and it's on the minds of everyone in the film. It's a very European film in that regard, and I did think back to The Longest Day, and that is a film about combat, heroics, and winning a war. Death is a seemingly painless affair, someone just clutches their chest and rolls over. It's a great film, yes it has spectacle and set pieces, but The Longest Day doesn't say anything particularly deeper than what you were seeing, and I think Is Paris Burning has a real gravitas to it. When the bells of Notre Dame ring at the end of the film, you cannot but help get swept up in the emotion of the moment. The city that has come through so much has been saved, and it will endure. Now, the film was shot in black and white, and this was due to laws around showing Nazi flags in France at the time. Yet the film ends with aerial shots of the city in colour in the present day. And it takes a real sense, and you take a real sense, of what the sacrifice of those who lay down did to keep the city and help it survive. There is a triumphalism about it, but it also it also feels celebratory and indeed incredibly patriotic. It's a rare raw film that celebrates preservation over destruction and it's all the better for it. I think it's interesting when you see filmmakers taking ownership of stories set in their countries. I think Clement's direction throughout it is impeccable. In one sequence you see a man gunned down before a train is filled with prisoners being sent to concentration camps. The camera pans back as the train moves off. German soldiers layer the image before we finally come to rest on a corpse. Some of the composition of the scenes is absolutely beautiful as well. In one scene, Orsamoz's character goes to Troyes to plead with him and his better conscience. And Clement uses the very width of the frame with each character almost at the very edge. And the scene represents the... conflict that is going on with Trevitz when he knows Wells' diplomat is right and he knows which side of history to be on. He may be the man in uniform but the scene plays out almost like a glimpse into the man's head with Wells representing his conscience and his inner monologue telling him to do the right thing. Clement uses violence well in the film too. Often with these types of films you become desensitized to the death here he uses violence effectively. It's shocking, yes, but it never feels cr- gratuitous, I would contest, and it's restraint the film managed to maintain the poignancy and the sense of sacrifice that juxtaposes well with the film's underlying themes. And one of the issues one can have with the Assemble War films is that we don't often get time with characters to learn them to really develop all that much. And as such, often characters like this feel archetypal or underwritten, and to a degree, I think it's a fair observation. However, I do think it is indicative of what these types of films are. They are not necessarily about the nuance of characterization. Instead, they're about wider events and thematic concepts. And yes, the film does offer some not so welcome tropes of the genre. There is an insufferable need to insert stars into these films, into minor roles. And in this case, it's Kirk Douglas playing Patton. It is so unnecessary and so distracting. It's almost borderline ridiculous. The musical score by Maurice Jarre can at times be a little on the nose, and for the record I've never been a huge fan of his work, there isn't one of his soundtracks I can honestly say he loves, there are themes from some of these films that I do, or The Odd Musical Moment, but truthfully I've never been a huge Maurice Char fan. All that being said, this may not be a great film, but it is certainly a good one. It says something different and it brings something new to the table, and despite being almost 3 hours in it's running time I actually found it flew by there is no blu-ray of it yet and the DVD still looks pretty good and I'm definitely sure one day it will get an HD upgrade there is another thing just to quickly add about this um, the, the the film was shot in the native languages of who was spoken then overdubbed and it is a little bit jarring at times, they did not find it distracting but you can tell it's being done and I, I, it's, a, it's strange, I think it could do with, I'm, I'm sure there must be the original recording somewhere and I wonder if they were to do a Blu-ray they could kind of have people talking in their native language with subtitles but who knows, I think it, I, and from what I couldn't understand this was done for the benefit of foreign audiences but never mind, still good film, um, seek it out on DVD and enjoy it. <laughs>
1: For 300 years, the Romanovs ruled Russia. They might have ruled for 300 more. But for the devastating force of events still reverberating through the history of our times. Within the eye of the storm that ravaged an entire continent, beneath the pomp and ceremony of a dying dynasty, is the tender and tragic love story that inspired Robert K. Massey's international bestseller, Nicholas and Alexandra.
0: The joy of doing episodes like this is discovering new films to love, and the tweaking of this year's format has meant I was able to do some decent film mining. I did intend on doing... Uh, Franklin J Schaeffer's pattern but decided to save it for another day and instead found another one of his films and one that I'd only ever heard good things about and that film was Nicholas and Alexandra. Made in 1971, the film was produced by Sam Spiegel. Now Spiegel had made a number of films with David Lean and it was on Lawrence of Arabia where the pair had clashed most. Spiegel was eager for Lean to get a move on and complete the picture Lean, ever the perfectionist, was seemingly taking forever. Now, one need only see Lawrence of Arabia to see the final result and know how the turned out. But for Lean and Spiegel, the damage was done. Lean froze Spiegel out of his next pitch, the enormously successful Dr. Zhivago. Spiegel therefore decided to make his own Russian epic and looked at the historical story of Nicholas and Alexandra. He acquired the rights on the booked on the subject by Robert Masses, and hired screenwriter and playwright James Goldman to work on an adaption. Goldman had had success with The Lion in the Winter in 1968, and it was a film that earned Catherine Hepburn another Oscar. And if I'm completely honest, I was distinctly underwhelmed when I watched that film recently. Um, it, for me, it never really transcended its theatre roots, it was too stagey which stands to reason, um, given that ultimately it was based in the play, but I found it ever so slightly dull with bland direction and very little to actually engage me. But nonetheless, Goldman carried on working on the script for Nicholas and Alexandra while Spiel tried to find a director. Several were considered and came and went. George Stevens and Joseph Mankiewicz were at some point courted, but ultimately, after seeing Patton, Goldman suggested Franklin J. Schaffner. Now, Schaffner's time was at the peak of his powers. Planet of the Apes and Patton had been huge hits, and Spiegel managed to get him on board, and along with Columbia, the picture was put into production with a budget of $9 million. And the budget of $9 million, I think, for an epic, is relatively a modest amount, but Spiegel made some key signings in his production crew. Production designer John Box, who Speedwell had worked with on Lawrence of Arabia and had also brought the Russian Revolution alive on Dr Zhivago, was brought in. Director of photography Freddie Young, another veteran of lean collaboration, and one need only look at his filmography to see his pedigree. Now, due to the film's budget, Spiegel's first choice of Peter O'Toole and Vanessa Redgrave were instead filled by lesser-known Michael Jason and Janet Sussman, who with a supporting cast that included Laurence Olivier, Jack Hawkins, Michael Redgrave and Tom Baker as Rasputin. Filming would take place in Spain and Yugoslavia, doubling for Russia, as again it had done, certainly in the case of Spain, in certain scenes for Dr Chivago. The p- plot of the film follows the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas, and the Tsarina, Alexandra, at a crossroads in European history. Russia is at war with Japan in Korea and a war that is costing a great deal of many of Russian lives. And it is under pressure from his prime minister that the Russian people are beginning to go restless with his rule. Meanwhile, the Tsar and Tsarina welcome a new son into the world, Alexei. However, Alexei has been born a haemophiliac, meaning any bump could result in his death. Alexandra, desperate for a cure, turns to Rasputin, who manages to convince her that he and God can save the child. Meanwhile, Lenin, Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky a, plot a people's revolt to Alcassar as the events of the First World War begin to be felt across Europe. And Nicholas is faced with an increasing dilemma. Does he cling to power or allow change? Who is really in charge of the country? And is his wife, as rumour has it, having a sexual relationship with Rasputin? Nicholas and Alexandria is a film about modernity. It shows two different worlds colliding. On the one hand you have the european countries still being governed by a vast web of interconnected families desperately clinging on to power and in other countries you have heads of states who have long ceded their power to representational governments russia despite having a duma and a semblance of democracy was still very much in the control of the Tsar and his advisors and despite having a reputation as reformer and somewhat more enlightened than the previous Tsar, nicholas was for want of a better word a complete despot his reign is littered with massacres, war, anti-Semitic crackdowns and a general indifference to the suffering of those he claims in the film to have loved him. Nikki and Alex, as we will come to know them in the film, are presented to us as a devoted husband and wife team, desperately trying to care for their haemophiliac son, Alexei. The film dips between their relationship and the political and domestic situation that is playing out around them. Indeed, Nicholas seems to be a fairly inept leader, who's. Dedication to his German wife is ultimately the cause of why he is so seemingly unable to grasp the desperation of the situation that is slowly enveloping him. To this degree, Nicholas and Alexander go to great lengths to humanise this couple. Herein lies one of the issues with such an undertaking. It is almost impossible not to see him as what he is, which is a deeply unpleasant human being responsible for unimaginable human suffering. The film regularly shows us the brooding discontent in Russia, the people weary of the weary of the hardship, and protesting and being massacred, while Stalin, Trotsky, and Lenin plot their revolution. Now we know from histories that what would actually follow this art would end up being a lot worse. And the film does make you think about this dynamic i suppose with the hindsight of history he might be awful but what's going to follow is even going to be even worse so our loyalties within the film are really hard to grab onto lenin trotsky and Stalin plotting their revolution because we know how terrible these human beings are as well the truth is however i became engrossed in the film regardless of what we know from history Indeed, it is a part of the appeal of Nicholas and Alexandra, is that you can find humanity in these people. And what I think the film does is show the folly of the old system in which Cesar would simply become leader by birthright. Jason, who is impeccable in the film, reminded me at times of Alec Guinness. Indeed, I do wonder how it was he never went on to really kind of bigger things after this, infuses Nicholas with a kind of dim witted ignorance born from his innate belief that because of who he is, and his numerous relations in power around Europe, nothing truly bad will ever become of him because somehow this is all part of some divine plan. His assertion that the people will love him is so evidently ridiculous, it could only be said by someone dumb enough to actually believe it.
3: Imagine, sire, imagine that you are a factory worker, you're really poor, your belly is never full, you freeze eight months of the year, your children have no school, no doctor your country taxes you and sends your sons a continent away to die on a piece of land on the pacific now sir japan is a third rate power if she defeats us if port arthur falls we shall be disgraced in the eyes of the world and here at home we shall have an insurrection on our hands my people love me sergey Yulievich. they want a constitution and the right to vote for an elected Duma. They're angry and they're serious. Are you advising me to give my rights away? I'm advising you to stop a hopeless war.
0: Therefore I found myself developing an immunity around the character, whereby I saw him as a father and a husband first and a despot and tyrant a distant second Of course, it's easy to scoff, and I'm sure Saddam Hussein had his moments where it was quite a good laugh. Yet the film has a sensibility, a sensitivity to it, almost an innocence in how it treats its lead characters that disarmed me and drew me in. As a father, Nicholas is devoted. It is clear that he loves his children. Why would he not, after all? The family live in a veritable definition of a golden cage, Summer Palace's servants totally cut off from reality. There's an abstraction to their existence, they rarely see the real world, only instead it is brought to them in the form of reports from ministers telling them about what is going on, all of which insulates them from the calamity that is ensuing. In one standout sequence, Nicholas sends Russia to war as his Prime Minister, Count Witt, played by Laurence Olivier, paces around desperately trying to talk him out of it. As the scene plays out, it is obvious that the Count is actually invisible to all around him. He literally cannot be seen or heard, as those around the Tsar simply push toys on a map, making the man-child Tsar foolish d- plans come true.
3: This one can't get to the colours soon enough, can you? I'm old, sir. I've seen so many wars. They all seemed so important at the time. Now, I don't even remember what they were called. Millions of dead men. I don't know why.
2: Nobody knows.
3: You could so easily stop this war, sir. All you have to do is to get up now, quietly, go home to your family. You'll be the greatest
2: of all that size.
1: Your Majesty's Foreign Minister, Mr. Sazonov, has received a note from the German ambassador.
3: Majesty, at 10 minutes past 7 this evening, Germany declared war on Russia.
0: And then comes the mechanics of war, supplies, reinforcement, tactics, none of which the Tsar has a clue as to handle, and leads the country into utter catastrophe. Yet he is never personally effective, never seemingly bothered because he is a person incapable of living any form of reality other than one of ignorance and enrichment. The world only affects Nicholas when it becomes personal. So enter Rasputin, played by the excellent Tom Baker. A self-styled religious guru, Rasputin manages to charm Alexandra into thinking he can help Alexei by using God as a conduit through him. She is enchanted by the larger life character and soon tongues are wagging. Indeed, derogatory propaganda is made hinting that her and the monk are having sex. The film makes the bogus case that it was her relationship with him that is in part responsible for the downfall of Russia. It's one of the screenplay's missteps perhaps, painting Alexandra as a nagging wife causing her man to lose his mind, and certainly the film doesn't work, it's when things get a little bit too melodramatic between the two for its own good. In one particular scene we see Nicholas literally lying on the floor in tears at his wife's feet. It's hard to really imagine anyone, let alone a Tsar, acting like such a dork, Yet Rasputin is a fascinating character, indeed possibly the most interesting one in the whole film. It's obvious he knows that he is a fraud. He has no magical powers, no hotline to the Almighty. Yet he is a chancer, a charlatan who stands for nothing. Yet Alexandra is smitten.
2: I shouldn't have sent for you. I don't know you at all. If baby wakes, he'll need me. Goodbye.
3: Child will die if you don't get down on your knees and beg for his life, like a peasant begging for crusts at your door.
2: You will be taken back to St. Petersburg. Wait outside.
3: I knew you were going to send for me. I knew the child was sick. I know what's the matter with him. You can't. I see blood when I shut my eyes. A lot of blood. I saw blood once before when I was in Jerusalem, and then my father died. In Kazan, there's an ivory Christ, and the wounds bleed. Someone told me there's a Madonna in Kharkov that sheds real tears. Matushka, I see things. I have power. I cure the sick. Holy men kneel to me and kiss my hands. I am a vessel of the Lord. I have spoken with God. It must be so. How else can I do these things? I save souls and bring peace. God leads me. He brought me here. He speaks through me. I am the voice of God. It is his will. I have been sent to do great things.
0: In a way, Rasputin represents a need to understand the chaos the chaos, a figure of guidance to bring about a kind of order in her life. Figures like him crop up all the time, gurus, mystics, cult leaders. The one that always gets me is Deepak Shapura, is notable modern day example. The man speaks utter nonsense time and time again. His words are off, utterly vacuous, yet somehow people seem to think the garbage he talks somehow means something. And we also have it in the world of faux intellectualism, raised Aslan loves to promote his scholarly credentials, yet upon further investigation these seem to be somewhat lacking, yet the man is regularly seen on television spouting nonsense that he had clearly no authority on whatsoever. And what these and Rasputin have in common is an uncanny ability to tap into people's psyche and bypass any form of rational thinking, and become anchors by which people attach authority to. Baker injects much needed energy into the film. He stills the scenes, his faux humility, his um, smug sense of knowing, and ultimately his stupidity, stupidity and folly that will eventually see him killed off. And cometh the revolution, Nicholas and Alexandra are forced into exile and civil war engulfs the country. With Stalin Lenin and Trotsky now vying for control, the reality of Nicholas and Alexandra's life begins to unravel. Here the film does its best to present them as just a simple couple, raising their children the best they can, when all around them are hostile. The dynamic of the film changes. It is now Nicholas who is forced to stand before other people. The heirs and graces have become, he has become accustomed to now vanish. Monarchies, as institution, fascinate us. They're, to me, me there is something utterly ridiculous about having a queen, yet somehow I can't bring myself to become a republican Yet there's also something quite appealing about seeing people in privileged world occasionally being given a savaging in the public eye. Prince Andrew making complete ass of himself on television was one of the best things I've ever watched. The man literally made a complete fool of himself, seemingly unaware of just how awful he was looking. It was good to watch and you sort of felt he deserved it. In Nicholas and Alexandra, the film Inversion of the Power Dynamics doesn't make you gloat because Nicholas seems so serene and ultimately unconcerned by it all. He is polite, obedient, and courteous. And yes, I started to like him because the film knows how to make that ending hit hard. You take no pleasure in his downfall. In fact, it is at times unbearably sad because when that final end does come, it is really almost an unbearable sequence, a heinous act committed by zealots and madmen The films restraint straight and matter-of-factness makes it all the more galling to watch. We know what is about to come. Our movie-going knowledge knows that an empty room at the bottom of some stairs can be no good. The family sits in a kind of portrait, as if posing for a picture before their executioners shoot them like a load of gangsters. There's no bombast to it, no time to lament. The film's over and you are left on a downer of epic proportions. I think what you take into this film largely depends on how much you can get over who lazar is i think it's a credit to the screenplay and the performance that you can ultimately find humanity in him and indeed if you don't then i dare say this film will be a crushing bore to you i was personally moved by it i don't advocate the death penalty i believe in a system of justice shooting a bunch of kids is murder and that is the zealotry of political dogma extreme political ideology is so dangerous because it does in many ways resemble religion and religion is throughout the film resputing with his pretend hotlines to God and the, the, the Tsar's belief in his divine right to rule. Nicholas and Alexandra shows them all for fools. They are complicit in the misery that they propagate and as we know Russia's suffering would go on for many decades once the new order had come in. Yet there are glimpses of hope in the film, the moments where the Tsar's daughters dance with their captors and the Tsar begging for Alexei's nurse's life. There is just enough light in-between the darkness to stop it from becoming all-enveloping. An obvious point of comparison with this film would be Doctor Chivago, and indeed this does work as a good kind of prequel to that. And it's a different kind of epic film. It's an epic that's set in bedrooms in intimate moments, and it does have lots of beautiful scenery and set pieces, but it's a film that's played out in many respects behind closed doors, yet it never feels stagey. It's exquisite to look at, the set designs and the com- costumes. It's a world that you can escape to for three hours, and the running time, for me at least, breathes past. At times, yes, I think the dialogue is a bit stilted, but this is an epic for goodness sakes, and most of them have some clangers. And it's the performances that sell it. You believe them. Jason is superb, as I mentioned before. He seems to have deserved more credit, yet in reality it's hard to see past Baker as the scene-stealer. Were I to have any nitpicks, I did find the score a bit weak. I can't remember, and it seemed to be a little bland to my ears. And perhaps some of those those scenes needed a slight lift. I found the score to be a little bit wanting. But credit must go to Franklin J. Schaffner. Although it did not have a huge budget, this man knows how to get the most out of it. The way he uses the camera movement through the various palaces of superb and the aforementioned scene with Laurence Olivier was a standout for me and a moment where it deviates to the abstract yet it totally works it captures the madness of the moment in the most subtle of ways that actually made me wonder if at first there was something wrong with the audio being out of sync with the image I do love a good sequence like that, they make you think about what the director is doing and I don't mind it that they are making artistic choices that draw attention to their style Indeed, it is style and substance like that, for me, which makes directors interesting. And his use of the widescreen frame is exquisite. The writer William Goldman said that in the 1970s, along with David Lean and Richard Attenborough, Franklin J. Schaff was one of the best epic directors working. And in someone in lesser hands, I feel this film could have felt very stagey, or at worst, sterile, and it most certainly doesn't. And despite the huge frame, that last sequence with the murder is agonisingly claustrophobic the use of dramatic tension the silences simply the camera revealing the horror of what is going to happen it's controlled measured filmmaking and it needs to be because although the film can get big the scale of it never overwhelms or distracts from the story that's being told in short it is superbly directed his greatest achievement to me will always be pattern yet i feel like It does remind me of another David Lean film, Ryan's Daughter, because both of these films, I think, are vastly underrated. They're huge, epic films that need to be seen on the biggest screen possible. Now, the film opened to very mixed reviews. It won two Oscars for art direction and costume, and rightly so, it does frankly look beautiful. Audiences did largely stay away from it, it was not a hit, but hardly a disaster. But this was the 70s. I think it might have seemed possibly outdated at the time. We should say that Hollywood was a very different place than it was 10 years previously. When I think this film might have found a wider audience, playing in a roadshow format with the likes of Ben Hur and the Chivagos and the Lord of and the Lawrence of Arabia. But all that being said, I loved it. It was a delight and a pleasure to watch. In the context of this festival, it is worth noting that Nicholas Alexander was given a 70 mm blow-up, yet was one of the rare 70 mm blow-ups that have a mono soundtrack. And I actually picked up the uh, out-of-print Blu-ray from Twilight Time, which preserves this mono soundtrack. It's not a Matrix stereo one. And I have to to say I thought the sound was absolutely superb on it. The Blu-ray print is also quite beautiful, however, you will have to pay a price to pick this one up. In summary, I think it's well worth your time. If it ever comes on television, make sure you record it. It is an intimate and affecting drama. Yes, it's not perfect, but what is? It is a very interesting film, and by God, that ending lived with me for days. It's a beautiful film, a triumph of art direction in period detail, and although it does have its draggy moments, you can just gawp at the sheer opulence of it.
4: Eat your breakfast.
3: I told you, I don't eat breakfast.
4: Well, what are you doing here, then?
3: I'm picking you up.
1: There's some raceway. We got a concert.
4: I'm not that kind of girl. First, we have to meet through mutual friends. Then you call me in a week. Then I think about it.
5: It's I... this afternoon.
4: But you didn't even ask me.
5: I swear I got the manners of a hog. Esther, it will mean a lot to me if you came.
2: Okay, I'll
0: come. There is a moment in Frank Pearson's 1976 A Star Is Born when Barbara Streisand timidly walks out onto a stage in front of Thousand. She looks almost coy and embarrassed as the music starts. The crowd are at first hostile, she isn't what they came to see. And then something happens, the, the music begins and Streisand starts singing. And when I mean singing, a sound animates from her, so captivating, so impressive. You actually wonder if it's real and the song isn't even that great, but somehow Barbara Streisand makes it great. You cannot take your eyes off the screen the crowd lap it up, and her on-screen boyfriend, John Norman Howard, played by Chris Christopherson, watches in awe and amazement of her. And then comes the realisation. That's Barbara Streisand. That's not a character she's playing called Esther Hoffman. It's Barbara Streisand, and she doesn't want you or anyone else to forget that it's Barbara Streisand. Then it hits you again what the fuck is she doing in this film? And how the hell can I ever get over the fact that that is actually Barbara Streisand? Now, to answer this question, we have to go back in time. The the 1976 version of A Star is Born would be its third incarnation. The previous two versions both centre on the movie industry, and this one changes the setting to the world of music, with an early version written by John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion the pair wanted to make a gritty, warts-and-all look at the music industry, focusing on a married couple at the peak of their showbiz powers. It was apparently modelled on James Taylor and Carly Simon. No one really knows for sure, but this musical update of The Stars Is Born quickly atta- attracted the attention of Warner Brothers. Barbara Streisand owed them a picture, and the studio thought it would be a perfect for her, and thus began what could best be described as development hell. Streisand almost immediately began throwing her weight around on the project. Dune and Didion quickly dropped out on the early stages, and then her then and Streisand's then boyfriend John Peter was going to direct. However, he soon was out and and back on producing duties. His reason for doing this was he couldn't really imagine having to direct his own partner, which is actually quite strange because. How the fuck did he ever think he was going to direct anyway? He was, after all, her hairstylist at one stage and had absolutely no directing experience whatsoever. He did also briefly suggest that he play the Chris Christopherson character too. I'm assuming also that he decided to jack that in quite early on in Proceedings 2. Enter then writer-director Frank Pearson, brought in to develop the screenplay, Pearson was originally brought in just to polish the screenplay and he soon discovered that Streisand and Peters were going to be very difficult to deal with. He realised very early on that the pair wanted to make the film that was essentially a film about them. Indeed, Streisand even said, People are curious, they want to know about us, that's what they come to see. And Peters began telling Pearson about their private life, their sex, their fights, their love. And Streisand was interested in this, however, she was already thinking ahead because she wanted to do, in years to come, a Barbara Streisand life story film and decided that she wanted these elements to go into that. Even at this stage, Pearson was having his doubts, but he decided to stay on board. And it's worth noting, he had never actually seen a Streisand film before, so he decided in one binge watch to go through them all, and he liked what he saw. And then he had an idea he was going to direct the film. He began working on the script, unpicking the previous two versions, and using the Dune and Didion screenplay as a basis to shape it even more. Streisand then demanded that she work with him on the screenplay, and he refused telling her he worked better alone. To which her response was, so do I. Pearson then brought on director of photography Bob Surtees to shoot the film. Streisand was immediately concerned about this choice of director of photography. She had decided that she looked backlit, and wanted to be backlit as possible as much in the film, and she demanded to know if Certes was going to shoot her like this, and was he up to the job? Presumably, he had never actually seen his filmography either. And Then there was the all-important decision as to what side of Streisand's face they were going to shoot the most. Her right side, she had decided, was too comedic. There was a non-existent upturn of the mouth, so it had to be her left side. Pearson's having none of it. The film will get too predictable if he shoots it this way, and he claims it won't be that type of a film anyway. Streisand becomes annoyed. She wonders why he doesn't want to make her look beautiful, like the other directors she's worked with. William Wyland had given her lots of close-up. Will she be getting many close-ups too, she demands to know. She's She's also concerned that Pearson doesn't love her enough as he's finishing the script desperately trying to get Streisand to read it. She's not really that bothered or interested, she just wants to know how many close-ups she's going to get. Contractually, the film has to have six Streisand songs in the picture. Writers are brought in in the form of Paul Williams and Kenny Asher. Streisand buries herself into their work, drops lyrics, adds them, makes them more hair. There's bits of songs, but they all seem so far away from being completed. Then there is who to cast alongside her. Elvis is briefly considered, but John expresses concern that he believes Elvis wants to fuck Streis and therefore he might end up falling out with him. Eventually, Chris Christopherson is brought on to star Yet yeah, there's, there's problems almost immediately with him. He doesn't like the songs that are being written for him. They envisage a kind of Bruce Springsteen-esque character and he's having none of it. He also doesn't like John in particular and at rehearsals he demands to know what the fuck Barbara Streisand hairdresser knows about rock music. It's shit John snaps back before the pair have to be separated. Christopherson then bizarrely becomes obsessed with the idea of Bob Dylan seeing the film and hating his music. One can possibly understand why this is, where this is coming from in, forms, in the form of the industrial amount of cannabis Christofferson is smoking. And he then starts even hallucinating that he's um, reading bad reviews. It all reaches ahead with him, claiming he's going to quit if they don't let him change the music. They briefly considered dropping Christofferson, but it's too late and contractually it'd be an absolute nightmare. And by that stage, Streisand's songwriters too have had enough. They blame John for all the delays, and a huge fight breaks out. Everyone at this stage is now becoming increasingly worried. Rehearsals for the film have been sacrificed to prepare the music. No one seems happy with anything. Production is delayed a month, and even worse, Streisand has developed a rash. She demands to know whether the filming could be put back even further. She's told quite bluntly, filming has to start in a month. Then at last, filming on A Star Is Born would begin. Day one of the shoot, she saw Streisand in tears, tears of joy. She had never, she decided, looked, looked this good on screen. Bob Surtees had done it. She was convinced that after only one day of filming, they were onto a hit. But then things began to unravel. Streisand seemed unable to comprehend the collaborative nature of making a film. Anything that was not under her direct control caused her to have almost daily meltdowns. Screaming matches began to ensue between director Star and Star's boyfriend. Then there's the issue with Kristofferson. Streisand can't stand the fact that most of the time he's stoned and drunk, just like his character. And the reason for this is simple. Kristofferson believes that he should get wasted to play wasted, and Streisand becomes even more irritated with him. Pearson then has to ask him to rein it in, which he agrees to. Then all of this is leading up to the bath scene between the two, and John demands to know whether or not Christopherson will be wearing underwear. He doesn't want his girlfriend naked in a bath with another man. He demands that there's no clothes set for the scene, and is behind the camera as it's being filmed, nervous that Streisand might be enjoying herself too much with Christopherson. For the record, you can pretty much tell that they're not. After all this is being done, Streisand is not happy again. Where are her close-ups, she demands to know. William Wyler gave her close-ups. Where are hers now? She's not even that sure how close a close-up is. But whatever a close-up is, she's not happy and wants more of them. The day comes when Christopherson has to drive a motorbike off stage in front of 60,000 people. John has the idea of getting Evil Knievel in to film the scene but the idea is scrapped with John saying that the storyboards for the scene are complete shit. The scene's eventually shot with Christopherson drunkenly ploughing off the stage but there's another problem with Christopherson. His latest album has come out and it's been panned by critics and has flopped. The film is starting to feel a little too close to the bone for him. Perhaps he is his character, a washed out has-been on the way down, and things are making him even more anxious because he can't rehearse the sing- songs he has to sing. Because Streisand is using all the rehearsal time to perfect her routines. He decides he's going to have to start drinking again, this time necking beer and tequila. He won't leave his trailer, he becomes grumpy, sullen and depressed. And then Streisand has another complaint. Why aren't they using certain tanks that are better than other ones? Pearson tries to explain editing, sometimes different tanks work better for pacing, and a number of other issues, but she's not convinced. After all, she does have editing rights, so she can just correct these problems later. Dismayed, Pearson checks his contract and finds, yes, Streisand does have final cut over the film. During rehearsals for one of the huge concert scenes, Christopherson and Streisand have a huge argument about the way he's performing. The argument, however, is actually picked up on the microphones and broadcast for miles around. The press have a field day and this is the worst possible preparation because the next day 60,000 people are due to turn up for the concert. The shoot is a complete and utter nightmare. The stage is a mess and shots that have been planned weeks in advance go out the window. However, mercifully, the dailies are okay, but Streisand and John aren't happy. She's now becoming paranoid if the film's a flop, she's over and done with, her career finished. The production begins to slip behind, scenes are cut, and Kristofferson is very rarely seen from his trailer whilst he sits around reading negative reviews of his new album. Then Streisand makes another demand. She wants a co-direction credit. Pearson tells her no, and she wanders off moaning about how hard done by she's been. Illness then rips through the cast and crew. Streisand is developing another rash. Her world is beginning to end because of it. Pearson casually remarks to a friend that he actually preferred the combat experience of World War II. It was easier, he says. Christopherson's also dismayed at the film. He doesn't actually like what they are making or what they were doing. He thought it was a film about the music industry. Instead, he's making a Barbara Streisand vanity project. It wasn't what he signed up for, he cries. There's further arguments between Pearson and Christofferson, but the pair manage to get through it and decide just to finish the film and get a move on so they can both get away from this horrendous experience. Another issue develops when Pearson wins Best Screenplay Oscar for Dog Day Afternoon. John becomes viciously jealous of him and tells him that he isn't afraid of his Oscar, whatever that means. Much to Pearson's disgust, he finds out that Streisand has fired two actors from the film and brought in her manager and the president of the film company she part-owns that is the principal stakeholder in the film. She hasn't told Pearson that she's done this and he's absolutely furious with her. He decides that he wants out of the production and asks to be fired. John refuses to let him go but tells him calmly that after the film is wrapped he's going to punch him in the face for all the problems he's been causing. Somehow, the film finishes, on schedule and under budget. Pearson manages to leave, and for the first time in weeks has manages to get some sleep. Streisand takes control of the film and disappears to edit. Everyone is relieved the film has ended, and the press begin to ask the question, will this be the film that sinks Streisand? Now, given the hell that was the making of A Star Is Born, It's a wonder that the film that we see is actually surprisingly watchable. One can see the traces of its original attention in this version, and mainly that comes through the Christofferson character. There is a very real world rearingness to his John Norman Howard. You You believe him when he claims to be bored of playing the old ones. The disdain he has for himself and his audience is like a stray dog waiting for someone to come over and put him out of his misery. And despite having the physique of a high school football player, he has the face of a man whose life really has run out of steam.
1: Hey, come on outside with me a
2: Bring it up, Lou. Is the old
1: lady huh? on the road or what? Now she had to stop the tour of that television thing. Hey, man, you are not going to believe this. All the way over here, I've been trying to think how I was going to tell you all. the Better thing I got to do. What? Tell me. Well, it's perfect now. They want me to go on a road, and they want me to do it alone without the speedway. With some new material, it's good, but it's different. It's a different sound, you see. So I've been uh, working with these couple of young punks I found in a club out there in some candy man, and they're hungry, and they love my stuff, man, and it's exciting.
2: Well, it's good. I'm glad. What time is it, anyway? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, what? Come in here and No, come on, come on, come on, come on.
0: Can I do it?
2: More. Would you tell him I like what you're doing? Okay. And I love you, brother. And I love you, man.
0: The original intention for the film was to go behind the curtain of the rock star life and to see the toll that such a life exerts. And it is there the hits of coke washed down with booze merely to get on stage, the groupies, and yes, that very rock and roll cliche of the Quaaludes, waterbed, and fans running after the stars. Christophson is good, very good in fact. He looks like he's been on a two-week holiday with Sam Peckinpah, and he probably can't tell you where it was, I mean, they did have a very good time. Indeed, whilst I was watching this film, I did wonder what would it have been like if Peckinpah had been on direction duties. We can only dream for that one. Yet for all this, the possibility of something far darker is completely undone by Streisand. The issue is she wants the audience to love her, to adore her, and her character of Esther is simply too cute, which in turn makes her attraction to John Newton Howard entirely unplausible. Streisand herself has stated that she was a square, and that is essentially what she is playing in this film. And herein lies one of its biggest issues. It is impossible to see why these characters are attracted to each other. It's not helped by the fact that Streisand and Christopherson have such terrible on-screen chemistry, and I never believed that she would go anywhere near the man. And they do, simply because the screenplay says they do. However, nothing, and indeed no one convinced me, that there was a real connection or attraction between these two leads. And from their first meeting, it's obvious that it's not going to work. He wants a beer in a nightclub she's singing in, and they don't have a licence because it's a vegan place. Esther is performing a kind of Supreme's rip-off with two black women, and with her, the white girl in the middle, hence the name, the Oreos. And God Almighty, when I realised why it was called cool, that, my eyes did begin to roll. Her songs are annoying. She is annoying. But then there's that voice, and if you don't, and you don't see Esther, you just see Barbara Streisand.
3: What are you gonna do with my bottle? <laughs> <Right on. laughs>
4: You're blowing my act.
1: Sorry,
0: really, I am. And I can, and the film never does a convincing enough job to make you believe that Esther is just some random singer who strikes it big. Lady Gaga managed it, but Streisand is too polished, too perfect to shatter the illusion and make you believe her rise to the top is actually real. Indeed, the film doesn't even bother to show us scenes of. Her marching up the charts, it just all happens off-screen and suddenly she's the greatest thing on earth, like she was all along and is in real life. Streisand had final cut of the film and she supervised the editing and it reeks of her vanity. And as a showcase for her, then yes, of course it works. She does look beautiful. She's gorgeously shot by Surtees and is wonderfully directed by Pearson. The footage of the rock concert is ridiculously impressive. And at times the film has a Western aesthetic to it as John and Esther retreat to the country for a life of living in a kind of designer teepee, which I'm sure looked very cool at the time, but is incredibly dated now. If you pause the film, then Streisand and Kristofferson do indeed look gorgeous at times, but on screen they just don't don't connect. And like all versions of A Star is Born, this one suffers with a slightly saggy middle act that's largely devoid of any real weight. He acts like a jerk, she off-screen becomes a star, and it's obvious that John is not going to change his ways. He fast becomes a nobody, but the film struggles to understand what to do with him. He's gone too far for rebirth and comeback tours seem to be off the car and herein again lies another issue of this version of A Star Is Born. When boiled down to its essential components, it's essentially a film about a man not understanding or being able to cope with a woman loving him, hence they end up killing themselves. In the previous incarnations of A Star Is Born, the man ends up having to kill himself to free his love from his existence. But this version does not have this sacrifice, as to say, because John just crashes his car and dies. It sucks any weight from the film, and it makes you care even less about him. You don't really mourn him, it doesn't really, and it all just seems a little bit underwhelming. And after John's death, things aren't really helped by the fact that Streisand can't sell her anguish either, and you sense the whole thing is just simply building up to what Streisand wants and that is the musical send-off, and boy do we get one. A seven-minute close-up of her singing, a medley of her and his hits. We end with a freeze-frame, and her name appears no less than six times in the end credits. Despite all of that, I like this film. The Vanity Project is an entire genre unto itself. They are frequently incredible, for both good and bad reasons darren aronofsky's know it is one of the most ridiculous things ever made and i say that in a good way because it has to be big daft and ridiculous and it embraces that and a star is born is a film that is made to worship one person and it is being done at the behest of that one person barbara streisand she wants the camera and the film to immortalize her and she's not even going to bother trying to hide the fact that that is her intention. Stars are fading in their popularity. They can no longer guarantee success in the same way they used to. And we, of course, in a culture where stars are often really stars for doing things like making YouTube videos. Barbara Streisand is a star. She's stunning and has one of the best voice, and she has one of the greatest voices. To ever be gifted to a human being. She possesses a talent that we seldom see in today's stars. Characters are the draw now. Spider-Man films are always popular because it's Spider-Man. In this case, however, you have a star who believes, rightly or wrongly, that she should be the very centre of everything about the film. And given her voice, you can forgive the ego and just go with the film. Although the songs aren't that great. She makes them great, and it's worth the price of admission just to hear her bang them out and do what she does. And it's virtually inconceivable that anything like this with a star having that much power would be made today. But make no mistake, this film does look great. Pearson transports you to a time and a place and gives you an audio-visual experience that is hard not to enjoy. And yes, it does seem a little bit dated with modern eyes, but but I don't really mind it. In fact, I find it quite comforting to go with it sometimes. And now, although critics weren't keen on this film, audiences were, it was a colossal hit, which begs the question, was Streisand right? She wanted to be loved and for audiences to adore her, and they did. She was vindicated by the film, and perhaps that's something we don't really like to admit, that when someone with so much ego can possibly be right. Hollywood is often the story of the director fighting for his vision. We we look up to them and we feel their pain. But this is a case of a star wanting to have all the control. Her vision is that of herself looking around, looking and sounding amazing. And in that context, we call her a prima donna and just assume that she's awful. But herein lies the appeal of a star as born. It's a film about a nobody becoming a star. And if yes, of course, there's tragedy to it. But Barbara Streisand was once a no-one and became one of the biggest stars on the planet. It is kind of autobiographical. And it's that her kind of ego that makes Hollywood what it is and why we love it. Movies aren't just movies, it's gossip. My girlfriend was overjoyed when she found out that Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez were back together. She couldn't wait to pile into Grazia and read all about it. Streisand acted like a complete diva on the set, and the press had a field day with it. Yet, we live in an age now where stars are so boring, some of them actually apologise for calling Taiwan a country. I would much rather have a Streisand over these overly managed bores any time of the day. And Starsborn is a film it's easy to dislike, but it's a testament to a vision, one woman's vision, and it's why, in a way, I just can't help but admire it even more than I already do. So, just on a quick note on the um, Blu-ray release of this, the picture is absolutely gorgeous. It, where it lacks, however, is the sound. It's just not that gr- sonically engaging as it should be, which is a shame because it is, a, it is essentially a musical, and some of those Christofferson numbers at the start of the film, they, they, they do sound pretty great. Um, um, yeah, I, I was a little bit disappointed. I, I, I think there was there was room to expand the soundscape a little bit and um, for a little bit more fidelity. But overall, it's a pretty decent package, and it does have a Streisand commentary on it. So that was A Star Is Born. If... Today, you were to ask me what the future would look like. I would most likely, without really thinking about it, give you a tale of some kind of apocalyptic hell, a overpolluted wasteland where evil corporations lord it over the masses whilst we shuffle from our god-awful homes into our miserable jobs. All of this compounded by robots firing at us for dropping litter and whatnot. However, I would contest the reality would be a little bit different. Sure, there might be an infinite amount of new genders to recognise, but the matter of fact is this. Year on year, the world really does get better. Better treatment for illness, better efforts to reduce carbon emissions, better international cooperation, bases on the moon, amazing scientific discoveries. The simple matter of fact is, contrary to what our gut reaction may be, life really is not that bad. And it is getting better yet let's be honest this version of the future hardly makes for interesting films and television series at the best of times whenever we seem to write about the future in science fiction it is inevitably a rather bleak and miserable place and that's why i think to a degree we love science fiction peter hymne's outland is one such film and i first bought this at the age of 16 on the cinema club budget VHS label, and it was an early DVD purchase, then Blu-ray, and it was with a great deal of delight that I learned that this film had a 70mm blow-up and therefore qualified for this year's film festival. Now, after the success of Capricorn 1, Peter Himes wanted to make a western. There was, however, one small problem. The western was effectively dead as a genre, and of course Heaven's Gate was just about to be the biggest flop of all time. Executives were twitchy, understandably, so what was Himes to do? Well, you know what all good writers do? Do he got creative? And science fiction was all the rage at the time, so why not just make a Western in space? Borrowing heavily from Fred Zimmerman's High Moon, the film was actually labelled in some quarters as High Noon in Space, but a cheap knockoff, this film is not. It's actually good. In fact, it's really good, and some ner- nerdy fanboy talking up outland. There's a whole heap more to this film than just Sean Connery picking up a paycheck and some cheap science fiction zeitgeist cash-in. Peter Himes is, in my opinion, a massively underrated filmmaker. Indeed, along with Outland, two of his other films have been pretty much with me my whole film-loving life. Capcom 1, of course, his NASA conspiracy thriller, and the sublime 2010, the year we make contact, formed a trilogy along with Outland that I would watch over and over again. Often dismissed as something of a journeyman director, I think this has always been a rather harsh criticism. He often wrote, directed, and acted as director of photography on his films, and in the case of 2010, I maintain that this is a visual masterpiece. What I believe that critics have got wrong is that Himes worked within many genres, and he never really had a huge mega hit, and let's be thankful he seems to have kept Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, in business over the past few years, and his son John has managed to uh, single-handedly keep the Universal uh, Universal Soldier franchise alive. But Himes does have a lot of affection towards him in certain circles, however. The fact that he made films that appeal to a lot of teenage boys who were spoiled with things like Mad Max 2 and Conan and the like. When you read the glowing reviews of Outland and Capcom one, it almost seems to come from those cinema files who feel they came alive, came of age during this period. And as such, there is a lot of love for him and deservedly so, I might add. And going back to Outland was a bit of a treat. It's been a while since I've actually seen the film, and the 15 year old me loved it because I saw it as a kind of companion piece to Alien and Blade Runner, and the older me saw elements of that but saw a very different film to the one I'd experienced so many years ago Outland was the third film produced by The Ladd Company, and of course the following year they would produce Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Filmed at Pinewood Studios on a budget of £12 million, Himes wrote and directed the film with director of photography Stephen Goldpatt. There is some controversy around this, apparently um, Himes did a lot of the shooting himself, with Goldplat just setting up more of the uh, more complex shots, and that that's anecdotal, so I don't know for a fact if it's true, but Joe Goldsmith was on score duties, as well as the key signing of Philip Harrison on production design who had previously worked on Scott's Alien. The film is set on Jupiter's moon Io, where a mining corporation is recording record productivity. The environment is deadly, however, the pressure is such and exposure leads to almost instant death, and in recent months, several of the workers have committed suicide. Enter into this new Federal Marshal, William O'Neill, played by Connery. Bought in to keep the status quo, O'Neill begins to suspect that the deaths may not be as simple as suicide, and with the help of Dr Lazarus, played by Francis St- Sternhagen, the pair discover the workers are being fed amphetamines by another other than the company they actually work for. Base admin Shepherd, played by Peter Bohr, is the mastermind. And if O'Neill won't quit his investigation, then he'll have to face the consequences in the form of a unit of hitmen shuttled in to dispatch the annoying marshal. Outland is a very somber film on many levels. There's a pessimism in the world it portrays. Outland is set on the mining outpost Con Am 27, owned by a faceless mega corporation. And the power exerted by this organisation is that it's virtually the de facto ruler of law and order. The cops on Conam27 are all being paid off, or simply paid to look the other way. And it's a theme often repeated. In science fiction, in Alien, we have the company sacrifice the crew to find a specimen to be made into a weapon. Rollerball is a world where mega corporations essentially manage every facet of human life. And there was a famous a TV series which I used to love in the 90s called Space Above and Beyond, in which a huge arms company called Aerotech had started an intergalactic war and were now profiteering from it. And of course there is Blade Runner with the Tyrell Corporation, or Colossus the Forbin Project with its evil giant computer. Westworld, where killing has been made into a hobby. But there is a rich history of corporate suspicion and exploitation in science fiction. The answer I believe exists in the way in which we perceive our lives into the relations in relation to how corporations behave and act. For example, if you don't pay your taxes, you will be in trouble, a fine that could be financially crippling or even worse result in a prison sentence. Yet corporations like Apple, Amazon and the like will gladly post reports of their profits as well as the amount of money they have in reserves, yet pay in comparison minuscule amounts of tax compared to their turnover, usually by various legal means which themselves have been set up. To actually help them avoid paying the money which you or i would be forced to do car companies fake emission tests poisoning the atmosphere yet no one ever goes to jail and they are given fines which they can easily pay on the profits they made from selling the cars in the first place bankers who caused a huge worldwide economic depression resulting in my hometown of manchester in us, in when I w- working for the local authority, actually having to close facilities for vulnerable people and play centres for children. And yet the c- people who caused this problem and so much suffering and misery never went to prison. And then there's the companies and corporations that have direct access to the most important people in the world. For example, Tony Blair was at one stage when he was Prime Minister a de facto salesperson for BAE. What's well, all the more galling go- is this as goes on in broad light, daylight, and what do we do? Well, we shop on Amazon, we buy iPhones, and constantly elect people who have no interest in changing anything. The world might be delighted that Kamala Harris has become the first black vice president and a woman to boot, but she also saw the mass incarceration and exploitation of black prisoners. Were she a Republican, she would have been slaughtered, yet simply because she has the right politics, as some people see it, It is simply ignored, yet she is part of the very problem we pretend that we hate so much. Because in reality, nothing really ever changes. And we do, to a large degree, simply go along with it, because we like the cheap commodities and the convenience that these bring. And what you find in the modern world is people who consider themselves to be radical or revolutionary thinkers are more or less simply glued to Twitter, calling for Jeff Bezos to burn in hell in space when he goes up in one of his... In one of his rockets yet the simple fact of the matter is that these keyboard r- warriors really do do nothing other than make a lot of noise and throw insults around and this is the status quo but we have to be honest with ourselves our lives are better we have cheap travel better health and everywhere ending the list of commodities we can purchase to make our lives better but really we know full well that nothing is going to change Science fiction has a tendency to jolt us out of our comfort zone, so when we watch Blade Runner and see a techno-corporate hellscape, there's a slightly scary familiarity to what we witness, and the truth is, we can imagine it becoming a reality, even though it will most likely never come into fruition. In Outland, space is simply another place for a huge company to make more money. There's no wonder in Outland. The film never looks into the blackness of space and ponders what is out there and our place in it. Indeed, we see an industrial town that could be a mining town in Pennsylvania or a coal mine in Wales. Man, having gone into space, has just decided to do exactly what it would do on Earth. Conham 27 is a frontier town, only Himes has replaced the expense with the claustrophobic, an enclosed world of workers in bunks close together being transported into the depths of Io, to mine ore for the company although in space they have earthly concerns, bonuses, working hours where their next shag will come from and it's all provided by the paternal company. What this adds is believability and even if this is somewhat illusionary no one works on the mines of IO but we know what it's like to work for a shitty company that always wants more out of you for jack shit. Outland, Outland therefore has an everyman quality to it Blue-collar workers in space getting screwed over just like everyone else. This may well be space, but it's a world that we know and live in now. Space is no longer the domain of governments as well; it's become billionaires' playground. And you almost can guarantee that the Jeff Beys of this world would not think twice to open an Amazon distribution centre on the moon if they thought they would make it a few make them a few quid. So in reality, Outland is perhaps an early precursor in its view of big business and the commercial opportunities of space. Commerce is the real villain of Alien, Blade Runner, and Outland continues this theme. And it did give me pause for thought. Should we be more pessimistic about the future and the the role corporations play in it, or should I just calm the fuck down and remember it's only a film and carry on ordering cheap Blu-rays from Amazon? I dare say it's going to be the latter.
4: Are you Dr. Lazarus? Yes, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. That's a doctor joke. Are you the new marshal?
0: Yes,
5: I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes.
4: I got an alibi. I got four people who'll swear they were playing poker with me.
5: I've never heard that one before. That's really funny. Sorry. Yesterday, a man deliberately went into the atmosphere without his pressure suit. Yes. A couple of days before that, another man cut his suit
4: open on purpose. It happens here. How often? I don't know, it just happens here. Why? I'm not a psychiatrist, I can't tell you why. Some people just can't take it here after a while. Did you do autopsies? No. Why not? In the first place, the company wanted the body shipped out quickly. In the second place, when a person exposes himself to zero pressure atmosphere, there isn't a whole lot left to inspect. In the third place, you're becoming a nuisance.
5: Yes, I know. I would like a report of all of these incidents that have happened during the past six months I'd like it really soon, or I might just kick your nasty ass all over this room. That's a martial
2: joke.
0: Sean Connery's post bond career makes for a fascinating filmography. There's The Offence, a brutally depressing cop drama in which Connery boasts beats a suspected paedophile who may or may not actually be one in the first place. This was followed by Zardos, a fucking, frankly, balmy science fiction oddity. The one day I'm going to do a guilty pleasures episode on. The Wind and the Lion, which is a hugely underrated epic. The Man Who Would Be King, Robin and Marion, to name but a few. This was a man clearly wanting to move away from Bond. And why not? Because arguably he does his best work in this period. And Connery was Himes' first choice for Outland. And he personally flew out to see him in Marbella to talk through the project and Connery agreed to take the role after a weekend of deliberation and script reading and it's clear from the commentary that Himes provides on Outland that he was somewhat in awe of him through the production and in truth it is hard not to be impressed with Connery here because this is not a film filled with techno babble and takes place in a far more relatable vision of space Connery is not burdened with clunky, daft dialogue about light speed and made-up alien homeworlds. Hind's script is practical; it's to the point, and it's, although it's far from Chekhov, it is exactly what the film needs. Connery's O'Neill is a cop who has been sent to every crappy assignment there is in the solar system. His career is not one of achievement of making big cases. Instead, it sounds like one of dull servitude, the police version of being a nobody admin worker. And Connery is synonymous with a very particular kind of masculinity. He is a man's man, incredibly good-looking, well-built, and the type of person women want to be with, men want to be. In terms of his film career, he is, in some ways, always going to be James Bond. One cannot not make this association, despite the variety of films that came after. And in Outland, we see a Connery, progressing through the film to become the connery that we know him for. He starts the film as a family man whose wife and child very quickly depart due to the awfulness of the place they find themselves in. O'Neill is a broken man in at the start in many respects and Outland becomes a film about him becoming the man he is and wants to be. Many people make reference to High Nooth when they talk about the film and of course there is a similarity there. But Outland's connection to the Western runs a lot deeper, I think. O'Neill is very much a Western hero, discovering his own personal code and the conflict that incites with the environment that he is in. He is constantly reminded that he has to stop his investigation and maintain the status quo. And not only will he be okay, but he might even get rich in the process. Sometimes the Western protagonist has been an outlaw himself. We don't know if O'Neill has ever been on the take before, I doubt it but we know his superiors never really saw him as anything other than what he is. In effect, a journeyman marshal sent from post to post. The Western hero typically displays two skills, one with a gun, and the second is perhaps just as important, which is the ability to build a mystique, a bravado around themselves. And in Outland, O'Neill never appears scared or vulnerable in front of the film's main baddie, Shepard played by Peter Dole.
5: What's the matter, sun in your eyes? Well, 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 it isn't the law. Hey, Shepard, guess what I just found in a meat locker? You know, I have a feeling that you'll tell me even if I don't guess. 250 pounds of hamburger named Jario that works for you. I also found your shipment of PDE. So I threw the hamburger in the jail and the PDE in the toilet. Why was it the other way around? I can't remember now. You've been a busy marshal. Yeah, you're proud of me. Real proud. Yeah, good shot. Did you really destroy the entire shipment? Yes. You do have a flair for the dramatic. Was it expensive? More than you can ever imagine. Looks like you could be out of business. You know I've misjudged you. You're not stupid. You're crazy. You think you caused more than an inconvenience? Is that what you think? Why don't you go home and polish your badge? You're dealing with grown-ups here. You're out of your league. Whoever sent you that shipment's going to be mad that you lost it. Grown-ups have no sense of humor. I'd play a firm eight down there. Just swing easy. Marshal, you're dead, you hear me?
0: There's a theatricality to how he plays him, an escalation of the insults and threats. This is how the western protagonist builds tension within the narrative. In front of people that matter, they have the answers, the threats, the seeming invulnerability. Yet we see another side, and Connery displays a fair degree of regret and suffering in his own ear. When he speaks to his wife and son, Himes does what all good screenwriters do and simply lets the silence speak for itself. There is nothing O'Neill can say when he sees his son and wife than react emotionally, which is what Connery does superbly. O'Neill's most and O'Neill's most meaningful relationship in the film comes in the form of Dr. Lazarus, played by Francis Sternhagen. Originally, Himes wrote the character as male before changing the sex at the last moment, however, he did not make any changes to her dialogue. And as such, the pair have a purely platonic relationship that builds around mutual insults and respect. They have a chemistry that doesn't turn into a distracting romantic subplot. And again, without the techno babble, the dialogue is functional in how it drives the narrative, but it's also believability in how their relationship begins to develop. And the best scene in the film easily comes when Lazarus and O'Neill sit in a squash court. It's a telling moment. Here is a man putting himself in a situation to prove, in a very base and primeval way, that not only can he become the man he wants to be, as opposed to the one he feels he has been his entire life, and the Western demands its male protagonist confront their inner demons, to rise up to be something better than the sum of their parts. And the film is not sentimental enough to suppose that all this, all that much is gonna change after he leaves. And in, one can easily imagine that it actually won't. But that is not the point. O'Neill will have to confront himself and win that battle.
4: That's pretty good, playing by yourself and losing. I'd join you in this dumb game if I could play sitting down. Yes, I'm well, thank you. Pretty busy. Seems there's some kind of flu going around. You'd be surprised the number of workers who are going to be sick this Sunday. It's your actual epidemic.
5: Are you going to be sick this Sunday?
4: (sighs) You're looking for sterling character. You're in the wrong place. You know? If you're the kind of guy you're supposed to be, you wouldn't stick around. That's why they sent you here. Maybe they made a mistake. I was afraid you'd say something like that. You really think you're making a difference? Then why, for God's sake?
5: Because maybe they are right. He sent me here to this pile of shit because they think I belong here. I want to find out if, well, if they're right. There's a whole machine that works because everybody does what they're supposed to. I found out I was supposed to be something I didn't like. That's what's in the program. That's my rotten little part in the rotten machine. I don't like it. So I'm going to find out if they're right.
4: Your wife is one stupid lady. You want to go get drunk? Yes. At least you have
0: some sense of it. We know that because he's Sean Connery, his heroism is going to be here. Yet the film strips that back and allows the character time to channel the hero lurking within. And when it comes through the performance of Connery, you feel he earns that final confrontation with Shepard. And when we do finally get it, there is no cheeky Bond-like combat, just a workman like fuck it and a good wallop in the mouth. The sheriff is metaphorically, at least, back in town. One of my main appreciations of Outland are its aesthetics. I was reminded by how much of a film film Outland was. Quite frankly, they don't make them look like this anymore. And although Stephen Goldback was the director of photography, and there are some rumours which I mentioned earlier about Himes doing most of the work, whether or not this is true, it is a gorgeous film to look at. His 2010 is one of my favourite directed films. The use of space within the scope frame appeals to my cinematic sense greatly. I love wider frames, the bigger the better, and recently I've been watching a slew of westerns, and it's become something of an obsession. And to give context, I watched the rather good Doctor Sleep recently. I really liked it, actually. um, But look-wise, and despite being filmed on one of the very best Arri Alexa cameras, it did look digital, crisp and clean. Appealing, yes, but Outland is the complete opposite of this. There is a slight softness and texture that digital simply does not provide. And Heim does do something really interesting, which is he wanted this to be a claustrophobic world, yet the camera composition is such that he uses the whole frame And with the attention to detail in the set, you feel like you are inhabiting a very real space. And he uses light, or lack of it, to great effect. During a scene where O'Neill speaks to his son, you can see a tiny light in his eye. And that was being provided by Hyman himself, who simply held up a light bulb. And it's that kind of aesthetic creativity that I love so much. And some might say that the film has a naturalistic light to it it doesn't instead the light sources in the film often provide the only source of light in the scene such as a torch or a reflection from a monitor and it is a gorgeous film to look at and i'll get to its production site its production design soon but Himes is a great shooter his style complements the material perfectly editor stuart Bed is not one of those who dwells on shots for too long but between him and Heim. There is just enough going on, and a lot of shots held long enough to give you all the information before moving the film along. And I think Himes comes into the film with a very clear vision. Yes, there are cutaways to shots of the base in Jupiter in the background, but he keeps the film human-focused, and he dares to allow the camera to show Connery displaying some real emotions in it. And without wishing to sound like an old man, so many directors today simply don't bring a whole heap to the films they make. Anyone really could have made A Quiet Place too. Yet I don't think many directors could make a film that looks and feels like this other than someone like Peter Heim. And I think it says a lot too when the standout set-piece in the film is a chase on through it through the living quarters and into a kitchen. There's jumping between levels and doors being smashed in, but you are never, not for one moment, lost in the action. And this being a science fiction film, it's good to see you don't need to get lost in the scan. Instead, you're happy just to go along with two men having a damn good punch-up. And There's also a distinct tonal shift from the film about the last 40 minutes. Himes begins to let it breathe a lot more. There isn't as much music than in the first half, and it's when we see most of those touches that we recognise from High Noon, such as a ticking clock, in this case, we have the assassins about to arrive on a spaceship, and we are constantly reminded of the ship's distance to the base on Io. We hear it, see it, and as O'Neill tries to rally those around him to his cause, it's perhaps here I had a small issue with the film. I don't really understand why no one is actually helping him. Surely now he's exposed that they're being exploited, yet the workers just don't seem to be all that bothered. I I was expecting there to be some kind of insurrection. And of course, this wouldn't have made for the ending that we actually get. it did leave me wondering, and perhaps this is a recurring theme of Outland and part of the film's socio-political commentary, but where is the collective? Perhaps the film is implying that in this overly corporised universe, such a thing simply does not exist. I dare say, it's not exactly socialism I'm looking for, but where is the sense of communal justice? And one of the workers actually asked why has he not protected them? Well, he has, has he not? He's actually gone and found these drugs and exposed what's going on. But such an observation is not to detract, because as the clock ticks down, Heim allows the film to dust itself down and get ready for the final set piece. And again, not wishing to sound like an old man. But for me, far too often, films do this at a ridiculously frenetic pace and I think Outland has been made by a director who understands cinema and by stopping and taking a breather you can allow the audience to reset and when you get going again the film jolts you back into life, the bangs are loud and and in your face and the soundtrack comes to life and brings you into the immediacy of the film and tone and pace are so key to films like this. Alien does it so well, that first half is a crawl followed by peaks and troughs of violence and horror. It plays with you, it teases you, so come the payoff, you feel you have lived through an experience. And the ending of Outland might be somewhat predictable, but there is kind of a twist. But ultimately this is about O'Neill proving to himself that he is not that man that the shitty company think he is, although it may seem a little dated. Numerous, I suppose some of those special effects shots don't quite hold up all that well, but I still think it's a massively impressive film. To me, I was never ever taken out of it and thinking of it as being somewhat artificial. It's also a triumph of set and sound design. There is a weight to the huge airlocks, the small touches such as green LED strips for when a door is open and red for when they're shut. It feels like a living, breathing world of metallic bunk beds. As a quick side note, Himes had about 100 extras who he would allow to get really bored and simply hang around before he started filming to give the film a more organic sense of everyday working environment. And there's small details that I really appreciate, like colour-coded costumes which is something that Himes saw when he was on an aircraft carrier. The, The scuff marks on the squash court, the drug dealer with no eyebrows and the slight haziness and atmosphere to the image. And it's the kind of things you can't really do with CGI. For example, if you watch those Star Wars prequels, it's so obviously that the world around them is completely artificial. And I do find myself, when I go back to those types of films, being taken out of them. Outland, this never happened. I was completely immersed in it, with its sensibility and aesthetics. I feel like I was watching a very real, lived-in film, and quite frankly, I loved every minute of it. Credit almost go to... Um, Jerry Goldsmith, there was a rumour that some of the music that didn't make it in Alien was actually used on this soundtrack and regardless it doesn't feel tired or overly familiar, it's an immensely enjoyable listen actually. And to be perfectly honest, I did really love that opening of the film which looks just like Alien, there is a comfort sometimes in familiarity. The film was also notable for the first use of a system called introvision that allowed filmmakers to view in-camera certain effect shots without the need to develop the film, so they could see if the shot had been successful before. It allowed actors to move between miniature sets, albeit with the actor moving through a predetermined route through the set, and it works. And nitpickers, again, could say it looks a bit dated, but again, I was never taken out of the film. I never thought, oh look, there's uh, there's an actor walking through a miniature and the opening of the film has a really impressive one seemingly one take shot that's the type of thing i could imagine robert zemeckis would dream of. now outland was blown up to the 70mm formula but most notably this was done to use the high fidelity soundtrack that 70mm offered if this, if you saw the film you would have on 70mm you may have caught it in a mega sound presentation of the film and essentially what this meant was that there was a deeper low end presentation designed to extract the most amount of the bass channels it was only one of four films to actually go through this process the others being Altered State, Superman 2 and Wolfen on Blu-ray 2 it looks a treat and I wonder what perhaps an Atmos soundtrack um, could do and perhaps even see this film upgraded to UHD Monday, hopefully, we might find out, but overall, as you may have guessed, I love Outland. It's legitimately a good film. Connery simply isn't there for the paycheck. He's good, and very good in fact, and has the balls to go somewhere different. And for all its sci-fi trapping, this is more than just a high noon in space. It's a singular vision of an underrated director who injects a vision and creativity and raises what could have been a rather average genre piece into something altogether more compelling and interesting. So many thanks for listening. Uh, There will be a short intermission now before part two, which will be with you very soon. Thanks for listening.